All right, tonight we're going to be talking about the topic of instrumental music. And we're going to be looking at the question, is instrumental music acceptable to God in worship? Before we get into the class, I wanted to mention a few things. One, I thought it was interesting, one of the points that Gary made in the class where he was talking about the growth of Islam. Anybody remember what he said the growth rate of Christianity was? A little less than... It was effectively zero. Like basically, there's some amount that you would account for is just growth in population, just the birth rate. But after you take that out, as far as evangelism goes, it's zero. Maybe it was considerably less. It was, and so I think that's very telling as far as what um, an obligation that really falls upon us. Now, granted, that's Christianity at large is how the world sees it. It's something that there is a burden that falls on us that we need to be more evangelical. That Christianity as a whole, as uh, taking it large from a worldly perspective, is diminishing and is not growing at the rate uh, as some other religions. So that says there's a, a very important burden on us, you know, beyond everything that we've said already. And uh, I want to thank each of you for being here because by just participating and being here in the class, that says that you're aware of that and this. Uh, evangelism is important to you and so I appreciate each one of you taking an interest in this and by the way uh, look forward to your comments Uh, anybody and everybody is welcome to make comments and as I did last time the questions that I handed out will be essentially the outline of class and we're just going to walk through the questions and look at each of those so tonight I want to talk about the clanging symbol a, a reference from 1 Corinthians 13 music that is to no benefit okay tonight I would like to divide the material up into three parts. The first thing I want to talk about is just putting forth a very simple and a positive argument. And then uh, after that, for the rest of the class, we're going to be looking at reactions that are very common that many people have. And so one of the next things we want to do is offer what I call some historical icebreakers uh, to break up some of the prejudice that people often bring to this subject. And then we'll spend the bulk of the class just answering some of the negative arguments that are brought up because the position itself is actually relatively simple. So as you begin to study with other people, it won't take very long, and they're going to say something kind of like this. You don't use instruments, so you're the ones who don't use instrumental music in their worship. Something to that effect is very likely to come up. It's a very common question. And the reason why it's, uh, I think, a common question is because we're kind of in the minority. If you look around, most of the religions, most of um, other Christian groups... They use instrumental music. It's by far the the most common and popular practice today. So that kind of puts us in a minority. It's kind of unusual. And so it usually creates a kind of prejudiced response where somebody's assuming that the majority must be right. So uh, how would you answer this question? No, we don't. Hmm? No, we don't. Well, we say that... In fact, I just had this conversation like this last week, and I don't know if I can do it the right way or not, but I explained that our effort in terms of trying to be pleasing to God is to try to be like Christians were in the Bible. When we mm-hmm. read something that they did, we try to do that. If we don't see something that's either implied or a command or something that's inferred that we do, we avoid doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, we're probably not, we're not perfect by any stretch, but we... That is our effort to try to be as close to what we read about in terms of what Christians did in the Bible. Uh, and we don't see any evidence that Christians ever worshipped that way. 
Mm-hmm. And the fact that we do see it in the Old Testament, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, it's obviously it was a known type of thing. It's right. Not like it was right. Something that would have been that odd. The fact that Christians didn't use it in the New Testament to me is almost a. It's kind of an eye opener. It's very compelling to suggest. Okay, <clears throat> they did it once. Why are they not all of a sudden doing it? And the fact that we don't see it being practiced is good enough for me to say mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. I read a, or I saw a tract one time, and I, I haven't read it. I assume it's based on mm-hmm. what we call church history. Mm-hmm. The, the title of it was Church Music <coughs> Until A.D. 800, or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Have you seen that? I haven't that? seen that particular tract. Is that, is, uh, is that a historical fact? I know we read the Bible that they sang, and that's, that's it. But was it until 800? A.D. that the, that um, all through those centuries, uh, people who called themselves Christians didn't use instruments. More or less, that's that's correct, and that's actually a point we're going to look at. And I think that's a, a very good point to bring up. Uh, the answer that I've I've used, and I think what Greg and and what Scott have said is an important point. You, know, you don't want to go into a long dissertation where somebody asks that question. They're not looking for just a, a very lengthy response. And so something that says very succinctly why we do it and then in turns ask a question. Because usually when that question is asked, there's some amount of some amount of prejudice and some amount of assumption that's based into that. And so you want to give, you know, a soft answer turns away wrath. You want to politely answer, but then you want to leave a, a question to kind of disarm that prejudice and that assumption and leave them thinking about that. So uh, I would just simply say God has specified vocal praise. The instrument, he specified that as well, the heart. And then asked this question, who are we to add to God's commands? And then uh, if you can remember to quote either one of these passages, very familiar, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then very similar in Ephesians 5, speaking to one another and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Very simple, very positive answer. This is what God has said. He's told us to sing. The only instrument involved beyond our heart or beyond our our voice is the heart. And so, and then the question is, is who are we to add to God's command? And that's the question for the other person to answer at that point. And usually they'll begin to, uh, you know, make some make various arguments to try to justify the practice. So one of the first things though that I've run into a lot, I don't, I've never heard anybody actually say this, but I think this is very much implied, uh, the idea that everybody uses instruments. And I think this goes back to what Brother Ralph was saying just a minute ago. <coughs> first of all, instrumental music has been added to most Protestant churches within the past 200, 150 years. Uh, the Catholic Church... Uh, really didn't have it as a dominant practice until probably about 1200 A.D. Now, there were some early signs of it before then, but that was kind of rare, few and far between. And as you'll see, mo- most of the leading scholars uh, were in complete disagree- disagreement with it until about 1250 at least. Okay, so what this means is historically, the one that advocates instrumental music would be associated with the rebellious minority. That was not the original practice. It was something that came along later, much later. And so, whereas a person is saying, well, everybody does this. Well, they're only thinking about the past 100, 200 years. 
really, if you don't count the Catholic Church, everybody up to that point, and then the Catholic Church from about 1,200 on, it was only at that point that they started using the instrument. So the people, it, there's really a, a confusion and a, a short-term memory that's not looking at history at, at, the, at the greater view. And then biblically, even in Old Testament instrumental music, instrumental worship was associated almost entirely with the temple. And it's not something you find before or really after that point. Alright, so let's look at just a few quotes. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these. Uh, here, 2nd century, Clement of Alexandria. The one instrument of peace, the word alone by which we honor God, is what we employ. We no longer employ the ancient psaltery, the cymbal, and the flute. A reference to the, to the Jews and what they did in the Old Testament. Eusebius of Caesarea, 3rd century. The unison voices of Christians would be more acceptable to God than any musical instrument. Accordingly, in all the churches of God, we send up a unison melody. And then John Chrysostom. It was only permitted to the Jews as sacrifice was for the heaviness and grossness of their souls. God condescended to their weakness because they were lately drawn from idols. But now, instead of organs, we may use our own bodies to praise Him with all. So he's making the point that just like many things in the Old Testament, God allowed them to use those things, but it was never really his primary purpose. And the New Testament has a much more spiritual and a much more uh, pure focus. And you can make comparisons like in marriage, how uh, polygamy was abolished as you go from Old Testament to New Testament. It would be a similar refinement and uh, move closer to what God's original wish was. The Dark Ages, the Catholic Church. Uh, Thomas Aquinas and his Summa Theologica. This is 1250 A.D., even at this point, the Catholic Church. Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God with all that she may not seem to Judaize. So he's saying we're trying not to be like the Jews of the Old Testament. And that's 1250 A.D. So again, there were a few Catholic churches using it before this, but this was not the, the, the primary rule, Thomas Aquinas being one of their greater scholars. Even the Catholic Encyclopedia, it references a lot of the material that we've mentioned already. They reference Clement and uh, John Chrysostom. And I think they may mention uh, Eusebius as well, but they also mention uh, Thomas Aquinas. So they, even the Catholic Church recognizes this in their own encyclopedia. All right, how about the Reformation era? This would be the time when many of the Protestant churches came about. Uh, Schaff in his church history had this comment about Zwingli in some of the Swiss Reformation movements. He says, The churches of the cities were purged of pictures, relics, crucifixes, altars, candles, and all ornaments. The pictures were broken and burned. The bones of the saints were buried. Even the organ was removed, and the Latin singing of the choir abolished, but fortunately afterward replaced with congregational singing of psalms and hymns in the vernacular. So again, you see this in most of the Reformation movements the move away from instrumental music as well as many other things that the Catholic Church had picked up um, from uh, the Judaistic system. Uh, John Calvin is interesting to me on Psalm 33. Musical, in his commentary and comments on Psalm 33, he says, Musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of other shadows of the law. The Papists or the Catholics therefore have foolishly borrowed this as well as many other things from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the Apostle is far more pleasing to him. Uh, John Wesley, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. 
The Christian worship consisted in hymns, prayers, the reading of scriptures, a discourse addressed to the people, and concluded with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this was written by Mosheim in his Ecclesiastical History. And if I remember correctly, he was a Lutheran. Now, Luther himself had no problem with instrumental music, but many other of the other reformers were adamantly opposed to it. And then John Wesley, of course, being associated with the Methodist Church. Um, Neander, I believe also a, uh, a Lutheran, talked about how that the music passed over from the... And this was a common belief that essentially the worship of the Jewish synagogue is where the New Testament practice came from, very similar in its form. And since they didn't use instruments, then neither did the first century Christians. Uh, Gerardo is a, a very interesting case. He was a Presbyterian in their seminary. And even in 1888, he wrote a book, and he was kind of one of the last vanguards in their their wing that was resisting instrumental music coming into the Presbyterian church. And he has a very good book called Instrumental Music in the Public Worship of the Church. And he makes a very strong case for Bible uh, authority. And he uses uh, very many examples that we, we would be very familiar with. In fact, you would be shocked to, to see who wrote it and where he was coming from. But that was the belief of his time. It is heresy in the sphere of worship. And then he makes a very technical argument. Solo never occurs in the New Testament in its radical signification to strike or play upon an instrument. And that will make more sense in a little bit as we talk about the Greek son. A Spurgeon, fiery Baptist preacher, praise the Lord with the harp. He's quoting from um, uh, Psalm 42, and this is from his comments, The Treasury of David. Israel was at school and used childish things to help her learn. But in these days, when Jesus gives us spiritual food, one can make melody without strings and pipes. We do not need them. They would hinder rather than help our praise. Sing unto him. This is the sweetest and best music. No instrument is like the human voice. We might as well pray by machinery as well as praise by it. So the point of, of all these quotes is to give you a flavor from all of these different denominations, even from the Catholic Church. Instrumental music was not common until much later. And so when someone says, well, everybody does it, what they're saying is, is an ignorance of this history. And I think one or two of these, obviously you would not want to quote all of these, and there's a lot more, but referencing one or two may be helpful to somebody to help kind of break up that prejudice, that iceberg that's in their mind that says, well, you clearly must be wrong because you're in the minority. Um, could at this time you quote the passage in Matthew 7 where it talks about the wide, wide is the gate? Um, what does it matter if everybody does it but doesn't make it right? Right, right. That's a very good point. And I, I want to mention this. What does all these quotations prove? Nothing. They don't prove anything. Now, I, again, I think that what they're helpful for is if somebody is locked on the standpoint that they feel like, well, I'm in the majority, so I must be right. No, actually, you're in the minority. But, again, more importantly, the numbers do not matter. And that's we've had some passages we looked at from the first class I referenced you to. And that's a good one to, to reference as well. If it proves anything, it proves that it wasn't done from, from mm-hmm. the beginning. Right. So like you might say, from the beginning, it was not so from the beginning of the church. And there, there has to be a reason for that. So. Right, you know. right. And so it would, it would hopefully you know, encourage a person to think about it and open their mind a little bit more to, to look at what the Bible says and ask, why is that so? And of course, probably the most common thing that you would run into, well, the Bible doesn't anywhere say not to use instrumental music. How would you answer this question? 
priesthood, so you could take them to the Old Testament passages as well as Hebrew 7. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you would have uh, Bible commentary saying that silence is binding. And using Hebrew 7 is very powerful there. I guess we use absolute truth. And God's word is all we need. There's nothing we need to add to it. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, I've had or heard people say, "Well, you can't prove anything by the silence, by the silence of the scriptures, or by the silence of God." Well, God wasn't silent, and I, I think it's a mistake for us to fall into the trap of talking about the silence of God uh, because He wasn't completely silent. He did command for us to use vocal music, and so I, I think it's a little bit of a, a mental trap that we can allow ourselves to fall into. He has actually specified what he's wanted. Now, the only thing he was silent on is what about all the other alternatives. But he wasn't silent on the primary issue, which is what kind of music does he want. So, what that says is if God has told us what he wants, then we're presuming that it's okay to do something else. Well, I think a good, a good thing to bring up is, well, how well did presumption work for other people in the past? Is God okay with that? How has he dealt with people like that in the past? A lot of very similar examples, or very well-known examples, Nadab and Abihu, remember when they were offering the incense, and of course uh, God incinerated them for offering strange fire. And then he told Moses and Aaron, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And I think that's very powerful because what that says is there was something fundamentally wrong with their attitude. They, they were coming to God with an incredible amount of disrespect and disreverence. And they didn't think God was holy, that he wasn't special. And he made an example out of them to say, yes, you, when you come before me, I am not like anybody else. You have to come before me with respect and with reverence. You must treat me as holy. And that's something that God's nature and our relationship to him, that's something that transcends all time. Alright, what about King Saul? Remember how he was told to completely annihilate the Amalekites and then what was of course he didn't he saved the best and he said it was to offer sacrifice and Samuel's response to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed in the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry Uzzah again notice remember the the story about how uh, he has this introduction oh let me back up so Uzzah, of course, you remember when David was going to transport the ark and Uzzah went and they didn't do it the right way. And then Uzzah went to correct it when it was the ark stumbled and, the, of course, the ark was going to fall. Uzzah, good intentions, good motivations, trying to keep the ox from, from stumbling and trying to keep the ark from smashing into the ground. But he, he disobeyed God's word. He disobeyed God's law. And God struck him dead for his irreverence, the text says. David said that uh, we saw him not after the due order. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that said, Thou shalt not use a cart. That's right. They were just told how it was to be done. Mm-hmm. So they presumed, and they even presumed in sincerity. They now had a good heart. They may know that thought they were smarter than God they were going to improve on it. Right, that, that would be a, a bad mistake. They, I mean, some of them would have required that he say, Do not carry it on a, a mm-hmm. cart, do mm-hmm. not carry it on a camel's back. Mm-hmm. Do not carry it on the ground slide as some of the old farmers used to have. Do not uh, drag it. Don't carry it on your back. Just everything that 
there's no end to it. Right. That's uh, right. There, there's not enough books to contain all the things, all the, the prohibitions. Mm-hmm. He just said how to do it. And David said, we didn't seek him after the due, after the due order. The due order was what he had spoken. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a good practical point, too, that if we took the position that God had to say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, we wouldn't be able to carry the Bible around in a wheelbarrow. I mean, as you said, there would be no end of the books. There's People are constantly imagining different ways to do the things that God said. It's ridiculous to expect Him to be able to spell out all the different ways not to do something. If He says, this is the way I want it, then who are we to say, well, let's do it a little bit differently. Maybe God would appreciate this. <coughs> King Uzziah, uh, this, is, this story was introduced by the point when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Again, I think this points back to his attitude. And what happened in this case is he took it upon himself to go into the temple and offer incense. Well, there was nothing that says that the king couldn't offer incense, but he wasn't from the right tribe, and so the Lord struck him with leprosy right there in the temple, and the priest hurried him out. So again, in all these cases, what do you see? Cases where God didn't say, don't do it this way, but people presumed to do it a different way, and most, many of these people paid with their lives. Uh, another good one that I didn't have in here is when David decided that he was going to build a temple for the Lord. Remember that case where Nathan the prophet said, yes, God's with you, go ahead and do it. And then that night God came to Nathan in a vision and said, where did I ever say that I wanted a temple? If I wanted a temple, I would have told you I would have wanted a temple. And I think that is very powerful as well because that clearly spells out God's appreciation and His, his view and attitude that He expects us to have toward respecting His silence. And David was never allowed to build that temple. All right. So, next thing that often comes up. Well, but you know, they use musical instruments in the Bible. All right, true. However, it was limited to the Old Testament temple worship. And here's another point. They also offered sacrifices. They danced. They burned incense. They did lots of different things. They had the altars. They had all kinds of things in the Old Testament. So, there's a saying that says, what proves too much proves too little. The idea is, is if this opens the door to something that's just clearly absurd, then the argument to open the door in the first place must clearly be wrong. So let's look at uh, how the Bible shows music down through the ages. In the patriarchal age, there's no reference except for until the children of Israel are crossing the Red Sea. And you remember right after uh, Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed, Miriam takes up a song and a dance with the other ladies and with timbrels. So again, if we want to use that as an example, that means we need to bring in uh, dancing as well uh, into the, the worship. But that's the only reference near the patriarchal age. In the mosaical age, there's nothing, this is kind of interesting to me, there is nothing about instruments of music in the giving of the law. The only thing that's even closely related to that is he gives instructions for creation of what is called signal trumpets. Trumpets that were to be blown whenever the congregation was supposed to get up and move and then set down. But it wasn't connected really with worship in any way. And it certainly wasn't made for creating music. So when the Mosaic Law was first given, instrumental music was not a part of it. Now you have references in Deuteronomy 31 to singing, but nothing to instrumental music. And you don't have that until you get to uh, David's era. And then David, he does bring in music, and you see these things. And so the question comes up, 
Why did David do this? Did he do it because he thought it was a good idea? Because he liked it? And, or did he do it because God told him to? Um, let's see. Greg, would you mind reading Second Chronicles 29, 25 through 28? I think this is a very powerful passage on this point. Second Chronicles 29, verses 25 through 28. Mm-hmm. Uh, he stationed the Levites. Let me make sure I'm the right chapter. Yeah. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king Cedar, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophet. Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offerings began, offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of King uh, David, King of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped the, sing, worshipped the singers sang, and the trumpets, uh, trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished the offering, uh, the king and all who were with, uh, present with him <coughs> worshipped. All right, so the main point's really captured there in the first couple of verses. What was the basis for the addition of instrumental music at this time? Command. It was a command. It came from God through his prophets, given to David, and David had specific orders for what they were supposed to do. This was not something that David just dreamed up and he just went and decided to do and just kind of rolled it into the worship. This was something that happened as a command. And I think that raises a very good point. Because as you know, as you go through the history at this point, you can find lots and lots of verses where instrumental music is a very prominent part of their worship. And if you don't have any references up to it to this point, and it took a command to initiate it and bring it into the worship, then what about for us today? Do we need a command also? If a command was needed back then to bring in instrumental music into Old Testament worship, I think a command is needed today to also bring it in. Alright, period of exile. I think, again, this is also interesting. As you look at all these passages, it appears that this, this, is, uh, this music is brought in with the uh, bringing in of the, the Ark of the Covenant and the establishing of it, and then ultimately the building of the temple. And what we see in, one, in Psalm 137, verses 2-4, through four, is that the Jews that were carried away into exile, when they were away from the temple, they wouldn't worship with instruments. It was something that was reserved just for the temple. And then once they come back from exile and they restore, they rebuild the temple, then you see Ezra and Nehemiah once again establishing all the different orders and specific roles and procedures for all the people to use instruments of music by the Levites associated with the, uh, with the temple worship. All right, and then very quickly we could just run through this. I think you're very familiar with this. What's the modern role of the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament stories are uh, examples. They're written for our learning. Romans 15.4, 1 Corinthians 10.6, and 11-12. They teach general principles regarding the nature of God, and they instill hope. They comfort us. They teach us many things, general principles, uh, what I call here attitude adjustment. But they're not authoritative. We have lots of passages uh, where God clearly shows that we're not to go to the Old Testament and the Old Law and use it as authority for any specific practice. We can use it to learn about God and His nature and how we should look at Him and, and have comfort and hope from that, but not for particulars of any specific practice. 
And then also I think it's important to notice from James 2, 10 through 11 and Galatians 5, 1 through 4. If you keep any part of the old law and you use that and you bring that in as authority, then you're indebted to keep the whole law. So what that means is we've got to rebuild the temple. We've got to go back to sacrifices. We've got to go back to incense and all these different things. If we're going to pick up one part of it, we've got to pick up the whole thing. There's no way just to pick out a specific part of it. Alright, so how about this? you ever heard somebody say, Well, I understand what you're saying about the Old Testament. We can't use it for authority. But the book of Revelation, it's in the New Testament, and they used instruments there. You know, John had uh, different people that were using harps, and they were singing and doing all these different things. How would you answer that, that argument or that question? Oh, probably in heaven. Very good point. First of all, it's in heaven. And so, just like we can't go back to the old law and look at the Jews for our pattern of worship, we can't go ahead and look at heaven and say, well, whatever they're doing, well, we can do too. You spoke of things that were shortly to come to pass, I think, for the most part. I think that, that's a good point, is that these were things that were about to happen. This was not uh, setting forth a standard uh, for what he expected worship to be from that point forward. It's highly symbolic, the, the book of Revelation is, so we can't mm-hmm. really take it to all as being literal mm-hmm. practice with Mm-hmm. And Justin, what were you going to say? This book teaches a lot, but just even then, when it says, you know, uh, if anyone takes away from the book of this prophecy, or adds to it, they're going to be in trouble. So I think we have to be careful from the beginning when we go through the book of Revelation, because I think it is really hard to understand this stuff. Mm-hmm. Trying to use that to justify different things. So we have to be very careful with it, for sure. Uh, first of all, the, the references to instrumental music, they're uh, in heaven, as uh, Brother Alloway pointed out. Again, that's you know we have to be careful when we say, okay, well, let's just take what they're doing in heaven as authority for what we need to do here. Again, that'd be the same mistake as looking back to the Jews and their system and what they did. But again, the problem is, is you're opening the door and you're bringing in a lot more things than what you wanted. They offered incense. They had golden altars. They had golden censers. They had a dragon. When this dragon could take his tail and knock all the stars down from out of heaven. And there was only 144,000 Hebrew virgin males that were saved. Um, there's John eating a book. There's other incredible beasts that are beyond description. So we're not supposed to be taking all these things that we see in the book. Uh, and literally, the Revelation contains very figurative language. Revelation 1 through 3 talks about the angel coming and signifying to John things that must shortly come to pass. And then throughout the book, you see lots of references to prophecy and to vision. It's what they call apocalyptic language. It's meant to be very figurative. So first of all, it's, it relates to heaven. Second of all, it's figurative. It's not supposed to be literal instruction anyway. And, uh, and as we pointed out, the application was supposed to be immediate. This was not. Uh, it relates to destruction of, of uh, Rome or Jerusalem, depending on your view. Not uh, long-term doctrine for all Christians. Okay, another very common argument. Uh, the Greek word solo, and if you look at that word, you can see the word psalm. And uh, the Greek word solo, in this case it refers to the verb singing. And then psalmos, closely related to it, the idea is, is these words, inherent in the meaning, they, they refer to instruments of music. Just pull out a Greek lexicon. So the very words that you're using, using in Ephesians 5.19 and in Colossians 3.16, those words actually are requiring you to use instruments of music. Has anybody run across that? Many times? So how would you answer this? 
Testament, the evidence is that they really did mean that. They really meant singing. The context of both of those passages mm-hmm. actually forbid it to be a stringed instrument because it couldn't make melody in its heart. It couldn't teach. It couldn't admonish. And the the Greek word solo in Attic Greek did have that connotation, but mm-hmm. not in Koine. Right, right. So I think those are the two primary points that have to be brought out. And depending on which one you feel more comfortable with, I, I would lead with first. Uh, first of all, you could say, okay, let's go straight to the, the good lexicons. And I think this is the point that Scott was bringing out. This is Thayer's Greek lexicon. And uh, he starts with solo. And he gives you the strict or the original meaning to rub, to wipe, to handle, to touch. And it came to mean uh, to pluck off, pull out. Uh, to cause vibrate by touching or to twang, like on a bowstring or a harp, to touch or to strike the chord, to twang the strings of a musical instrument so they gently vibrate, and absolutely to play on a stringed instrument, to play the harp, etc. Now, a lot of times when you find people quoting lexicons and they're in favor of instrumental music, guess which part of the definition they quote? Everything up to this point. Um, but he gives in later, he says, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, it means to sing a hymn to celebrate the praises of God in song. And this gets back to what Scott was saying. This word changed its meaning over time. In fact, it originally meant to pluck hair, to, like to pull at somebody's beard. So if we want to go back to the root fundamental meaning of this word, this means that if we're, that's what we want to do. We're going to have to, in our songs, we're going to have to start pulling in our beards and pulling at our hairs and, instead of singing. That's what it means. If you want to go back to the root fundamental word. So obviously a person has to accept the fact that words change meaning over time. And um, as Greg brought out, at one point it did mean to play like on a lyre with a harp and to twang and to sing with it. But as time went on, it dropped that part of it and became associated by the time of the New Testament just with singing, just with vocal melody. So uh, now there's in Ephesians 5.19, you see the word singing, but you also, in both passages, you see the word uh, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And if you admit that there's some generality or some ambiguity in, in psalmos, in psalms, that maybe it could include instruments of music, well, again, going back to what Greg said, the context limits it. It specifies it. When it speaks of singing, when it speaks of uh, teaching and admonishing and speaking, these are all vocal things. And so the context defines it and limits it to uh, the a cappella. If it really meant the, uh, if it really meant an instrument, would we not all have to have one? Yep, very good point. So if it's inherent, then it's commanded. We have to do psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, you mentioned uh, asking questions or leaving with a question. One interim question that doesn't necessarily prove the whole proposition, but uh, is a good question to ask when you when you bring them into these passages. Is you know their mindset is this is such a radical, strange thing. Mm-hmm. They're so opposed to the idea mm-hmm. of you know, singing with vocal music uh, that when you ask them the question, do you believe that it's wrong to only sing? Mm-hmm. Do you believe that God would not accept that? And it's a, almost a shocking response when they stop to think, well, no, I, I believe that that's okay. Mm-hmm. It is all right. It, it softens their own mind towards looking at the thing. Right, but yet the language is clearly commanding it, so that puts them in a bind. Mm-hmm. 
So that, that's a good point. It's a good way of help opening their mind to that. All right, let me fly through these very quickly. Instruments are, are an aid. No, they're an addition. Expediencies and aids only help you in keeping a command. They don't really change or alter it. They're authorized by general commands. But instrumental music is another type of music. Therefore, it is an addition. For example, pitch pipes and tuning forks would be aids because they don't rival as a source of music. So God specified the music. Who are we to add to his commands? Same question we've asked before. If the Israelites were already commanded to sing music, why did David need a command if instruments are just an aid? I think that observation shows that even God uh, realized it was an addition. Uh, Very emotional argument. Or you're saying it's wrong to praise God with my gifts. Uh, There's an assumption there. All gifts from God are suitable for public worship. Clearly that's wrong. Um, you can invoke you know, reduction to the absurd or proof by the contradiction. All you've got to do is think of one example that's clearly absurd, and then that shows that's a bad assumption and a bad argument. I've seen and I've felt the good. I've witnessed the Holy Spirit moving in these uh, instrumental songs. Again, you're assuming we can sense good and truth, and that, making that the standard. And that goes back to things we said in the first lesson. We walk by faith, not by sight. So what about Mormons, Muslims, others who feel truth and use that as their standard? If you open that door, then you've got to accept all of them as well. Assumption number two. Well, good never comes from bad. Actually, that's not the case. God can bring good out of bad. You know, For example, if an atheist doctor heals your child, are you going to become an atheist? No, clearly that's not the case. So uh, both of these are flawed assumptions. The answer is we know God's will through reading His Word, not through sensing it or feeling it. And this is a tricky one. We don't have near enough time to go through it. I ask you to kind of look at this in some of the material I gave you. Someone says, well, it's not commanded. It's optional. And what they mean is is the word commands. God, he didn't say, I command you to sing and to use uh, the voice. You don't see the word specifically commands. So the assumption is that commands are always clearly identified as commands. This is a completely different way of interpreting the Bible. And that sounds very weird, but yet I found it to be very, very common. Uh, you know, a corroborative argument, well, you don't greet people with a holy kiss, do you? Here's a command that you're clearly walking away from, so you're not even consistent. That's the arguments. All right, first of all, Bible commands us to follow examples. I mean, we have clear commands that we're supposed to do that, so we can't just necessarily always act where we see the word commands. And commands are identified by grammar, the imperative tense or sense, not necessarily the presence of just the word command. For example, Here's some divine commentary. Then Jesus sent out and commanded them. Notice that the Holy Spirit said that he commanded them, saying, but what did he say? Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans. Where did he say the word command? It's not in there. But yet he clearly says that it's a command. So their way of interpreting it is just doesn't hold up to the Bible's own interpretation of itself. Here's several other passages where there's something that's labeled as a command, but yet you won't see the word command there. And then third, uh, remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 37-38, that, that whoever um, would consider themselves a spiritual, let them acknowledge that the words I write are the commandments of the Lord. So by default, whatever the apostles write are commandments. And if there is an exception, it's clearly noted. Case in points, 1 Corinthians 7, where he clearly marks out, this is not a commandment from the Lord, I say, saying. that The exception is always clearly noted. Uh, and the exception is, is Paul's opinion. In general, it's commandments of God. I, th- I just threw this in for free. What about Christian rock music and this modern spiritual? This comes up sometimes. 
I'll give you my quick quick answer on this. Such music is either worship or it's not. If it's worship, then it's unscriptural because you're using the instruments. We've already made that case. If it's not worship, then it's blasphemous because you're uttering God's word, God's name in vain. So take it whichever way you want. Either way, it's not right. So conclusion, this is very, I think this is an important point because it says a lot about our attitude and uh, the key word here being presumption. And I think when you're working with people, that's something you want to help them to see. And then lastly, here are several references. Uh, and then what, if you didn't get a handout today, I'll have the handouts, the extra ones next time. So please let me know and I'll get it to you then. All right, thank you for your attention and comments.